Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. A new contest seeks radical concepts to rethink segregated cycle lanes. Open City friend Catherine Slesser tipped to become 20th century society president. A Hackney estate demolition sees a family battle against regeneration. And a new study explores architecture's environmental impact through the ages. My name is Zoe Cave. I'm head of projects at Open City. And I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My special guest this week is Barnabas Calder. Barnabas is an architectural historian and author of Architecture from Prehistory to Climate Emergency. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Our first story this week was covered in the Architects Journal and centres around a new competition launched in line with this year's London Festival of Architecture. In response to this year's theme of CARE, the LFA, backed by cycling infrastructure supplier CycleHoop, has launched a contest to rethink the temporary infrastructure used to create new segregated cycle lanes. Open to all and with a prize of £3,000 for the winner, the competition is looking for concepts for new, safe and contextual barriers, which could be used to replace the plastic ones currently used to create lightweight segregation between cars and cyclists on London's busiest roads. The judging panel features a mix of celebrity cycling enthusiasts, including David Vine of Talking Heads fame and radio presenter Jeremy Vine, alongside Will Norman, the Mayor of London's Walking and Cycling Commissioner. In May 2020, shortly after the COVID-19 pandemic forced the UK's first lockdown, the Mayor of London announced an ambitious street space programme intended to deliver a tenfold increase in cycling and a fivefold increase in walking across the capital. Key measures of the initiative, planned to relieve pressure on public transport and encourage social distancing, included a rapid upgrade of the city's network of segregated cycle routes using temporary plastic wands to increase perceived safety for people travelling by bike. The brief stipulates that concepts to replace the wands should cost around £50 to £500 per unit, should harness sustainable and affordable materials, be visible in all weather conditions and at night, and be highly durable. The deadline for submissions is the 30th of June. So Barnabas, 
Could you tell us about your experience of cycling in London and in Liverpool, where you live now, from your knowledge of the two places? Do light segregation methods like plastic ones work? Do they make people safer? What sort of design solutions would you imagine that that could help, seeing as one barrier is making that cyclist feel safe um, and is it enjoyable for everyone? I think physical separation is very important in cycling. Uh, I cycle with my uh, two-year-old on the back of my bike sometimes and I feel very, very much more comfortable if there's something that makes it very difficult to drive over me without noticing me. Uh, So I think they are a helpful measure. I sort of feel that what we've got at the moment, though, is a sort of um, tentative retrofit in a situation that demands potentially something more radical, where we've got an infrastructure that's unequivocally car-based, where measures of quite a small and tentative sort typically are being brought in to slightly improve its cyclability. If you were going to design a transport infrastructure for cyclists, to share with cars, you wouldn't start anywhere near what we've currently got. And I think that some of that more radical thinking needs to come in. And cyclists, I don't know whether cyclists are consulted enough on some of these schemes. Liverpool's just installed a big new cycle lane that's fully segregated through a a rather uh, lovely road that a lot of cyclists take into the centre of Liverpool, Prince's Boulevard. But they've forgotten to put in a right turn where one is needed to get you onto the most common uh, route that cyclists actually take. And every time you pass it, there are people trying to work out the least dangerous and least illegal way of taking that right turn. That kind of sloppiness and lack of seriously thinking about bikes as a serious mode of transport that busy people might take to get somewhere in a hurry uh, will continue to make it something that is a more minority form of transport. Environmentalism, concerns over health and exercise, sustainability, pollution, these are all issues uh, which are rapidly coming to the forefront of the agenda in terms of our cities. Um, You've studied the design and environmental impact of cities through the ages. Do you think we are now witnessing a shift in design culture which is about more fine-tuning through these small interventions. Um, And given your historical perspective, can these meaningfully influence and contribute to bigger, broad-ranging issues? Or are we just being wildly optimistic that we can change the world this way? I welcome the competition. I welcome all initiatives that uh, nudge things in a positive direction. Um, I think uh, the scale of activity is very small in relation to the scale of the problem so far. But most people, there's a a promising shift that most people have given up on climate change denial, but there's still a long way to go in terms of really facing the level of problem we're dealing with. Uh, Energy systems tend to embody in them ways of thinking that make it almost impossible to see the wrongs you're committing because of your energy system. And if you look at things like um, ancient Athens, where they were immensely proud of their achievement of democracy, uh, it was nevertheless a, a hugely sexist, misogynistic even, uh, culture where only men counted as citizens. And uh, it was also a slave economy where a minority of people in the uh, in minority even of men were citizens. 
Uh, and the only reference I've been able to find in the whole of all that Athenian philosophy where people hypothesized the existence of atoms and uh, imagined extraordinary things in political economy and uh, understanding the, uh, the universe around them. But the only time they ever seem to question their dependence on slavery and whether that's morally acceptable is in a joke in an Aristophanes play where a, a, a mad ideologue um, who's suggesting communism is asked uh, where, uh, who will till the fields and he says oh obviously the slaves and that's the only recognition of this deep contradiction in, in, in their economy and we're the same for fossil fuels that we just mostly can't face the reality of what we're doing, that we are potentially committing the biggest crime any humans have ever committed against other humans, against our own old age and our descendants, through continuing to use the amount of fossil fuels we are. And because they're so baked into so much we do, I'm sitting here in uh, in a, a personal world which is still very fossil fuel dependent, whilst I'm fully aware of the appallingness of that, and uh, it's a really difficult position to change individually, and it's a really difficult position to acknowledge honestly. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. Open City is now recruiting a new head of Accelerate to deliver, develop, and expand Open City's pioneering Accelerate programme. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash blog for more information. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. Open City friends receive a bunch of perks, including discounts on all Open City events and publications, audio walking tours of amazing parts of London and friends events at special locations around the city. Visit open-city.org.uk forward slash support to find out more. Our next story is the nomination of Catherine Slesser, architectural editor, writer, friend of Open City and Lundown Pundit, as the new president of the 20th Century Society, which has been announced on the organisation's website. Founded in 1979, the Society campaigns to save outstanding 20th century buildings, both iconic and obscure, from demolition. With a strong focus on preservation and education, it pushes to protect the buildings and designs that shape the landscape of post-1940 Britain, helping as many people as possible to appreciate their importance and beauty. Among the many buildings the Society is currently campaigning to save from redevelopment are London's soon-to-be-vacated City Hall, Cressingham Gardens, which we have discussed before in the show, the BFI IMAX and the former London Electricity Board headquarters in Bethnal Green. So Barnabas, who is Kath Lesser and why is this such an exciting development for the 20th Century Society? It's great news. The outgoing president, uh, Julian Darley, has been wonderful and is a very, very erudite and committed person and has done a wonderful job in the role. And Kath will be a worthy and impressive successor and it's a very exciting appointment. Uh, she's one of our leading architectural critics and commentators. Uh, she's trained and practised as an architect, and she's also um, done the superb MA at um, the Bartlett on architectural history. Uh, and uh, so she's got this kind of um, portfolio of relevant uh, expertise and contacts, and I have no doubt that she will use her 
uh, her profile and her um, toughness and her strength of mind that characterise her journalism, uh, which the 20th century society deeply needs uh, as they nobly fight uphill battle after uphill battle. Why is the conservation of our architectural heritage so important? Why should we be preserving these modern 20th century buildings? And what is the environmental value in keeping, maintaining and retrofitting buildings rather than demolishing them? Well, there are long-standing and, to me, totally compelling arguments about conserving the best of every period of architecture, which is uh, architecture is one of the strongest kind of worm casts that human beings leave behind them as they uh, move through time. And I think the 20th century, having been such a period of change and development and experimentation and exploration and uh, increased social provision and increased technical competence, leaves behind it perhaps the most exciting and important of any century of British architecture. But to that argument, the environmental one is added and it's so, so strong and so important. And the embodied carbon of British architecture is immense. Going back to the 1600s, we've been using very large amounts of initially coal, then joined by oil and gas over the following centuries uh, to produce the building materials that make up our cities. London is a city of coal construction in almost every building uh, or fossil fuel consumption in almost every building. There's hardly anything from the agrarian period left in London. And the uh, the carbon that was emitted to produce all these buildings is still in the atmosphere. It lasts a thousand years. Uh, and the heaviest period of that is the period since 1900. And so looking at the buildings protected by the 20th century society, they are enormously heavy in their embodied carbon. They're not doing any further harm in terms of embodied carbon. Keeping them up isn't causing them to emit more just because they're standing there. Uh, if you keep them, if you demolish them, that's just wasted and is yet more um, uh, carbon floating around needing, needing solving and no building to show for it. If you keep them and retrofit them, even if, in the case of the ones that aren't hugely architecturally significant, you retrofit them to the point where they're not even recognisable in, in their original form sometimes, you're doing something vastly better. One of the great challenges for sustainable architecture, truly sustainable architecture, not all the stuff people call sustainable architecture, zero carbon architecture has a really tough time producing fireproof, affordable, robust structures that don't bounce around the way that timber does on a very big scale. And demolishing existing structures in concrete and steel that are enormously uh, robust and long-lasting and fireproof is completely inexcusable and completely insane if they could have been repurposed. And at the moment, we're systematically demolishing very large quantities of 20th century buildings that would be absolutely reusable. And the government is attempting to speed this up with their permitted development ch regulation changes to allow you to demolish anything since 1948 to 2018, isn't it? Um, that they allow you to demolish without planning permission. Uh, and uh, that is the most robust and carbon heavy period of architecture we've ever had. And the justification given for it 
has been that uh, that period of architecture is ugly and insensitive to context. Well, it needs to be very, very ugly before it's worse than runaway climate change. We seem to be able to save historic pre-20th century buildings. For example, the beautiful Victorian Gothic St Pancras Hotel was saved from demolition 50 years ago. And now looking back, it would seem like a crime if that had actually taken place. Why is there often not the same conviction to save modern buildings? Um, Is it not just as much of a crime to be knocking down 20th century modernist masterpieces? Part of it's the turn of fashion that more recent buildings that aren't recent enough to feel new and exciting tend to be hated for a while, which is why St Pancras was nearly lost. Um, And so many other Victorian buildings were lost in that period when they were just not rated. Uh, The main thing, though, I think, is the question of, because an awful lot of people do now recognise how good our 20th century architecture is. In many ways, it's our most most important period of architecture. Uh, Only the 19th and 20th centuries saw British architecture being widely admired and copied abroad. Before that, we were um, a fairly ignorable corner of the world, um, these islands, uh, and tended to copy architecture from elsewhere rather than generate exciting new ideas. But by the 20th century, uh, British architects were producing internationally published and admired work again and again and again. In a way, it's not the ones that, it's not the high profile ones that are in some ways, in environmental terms, the biggest problem. The It's the systematic, casual demolition of enormous amounts of unloved city centre schemes that made someone a quick buck in 1965 and um, uh, car parks that are now not profitable enough and um, all sorts of kind of buildings that have robust structures but aren't loved enough. A Derby Civic Centre is a major loss and a a ridiculous uh, thing to be demolishing. Uh, Dunelm House is still under threat in Durham, which is crazy. It's exceptionally good and it's one of very few. It was one of the best student union buildings uh, in the first place and it's one of the best preserved now. Shabby but in very good nick otherwise and the university continues to uh, keep a question mark over its future. Um, It's everywhere you go there are plenty of examples of good and indifferent uh, post-Second World War buildings under threat. Our third story was covered in The Guardian and tells the story of a Hackney family's battle for adequate housing while their housing estate is demolished around them. Hackney Council started demolishing Marion Court in February while a single mother living within the estate was homeschooling her four children during lockdown. Residents have described severe noise and disruption and claimed the family's water and broadband have regularly been cut off. The family moved into the apartment in 2014, along with a number of other residents, following a campaign by the group Sisters Uncut, calling for the then-empty estate to be used to rehouse vulnerable women and families from the borough. Placed there temporarily as the estate had already been earmarked for demolition, Hackney Council committed to finding permanent social housing in the borough for the families remaining on the estate, but the resident says she has still not been offered a suitable alternative. This claim is strongly refuted by Hackney Council, which said it found her intentionally homeless in 2019 after she turned down two properties in the area. They maintain that they have provided extensive support to the resident over many years, including multiple offers of suitable alternative permanent accommodation. 
They also said that the unnamed woman has a set of keys to an apartment in Stoke Newington and could move in at any time. Pictures released to The Guardian claim to show the Stoke Newington apartment in a state of disrepair, with neighbours who have seen the images say it is clear she doesn't have a choice about moving into the new apartment. Meanwhile, another neighbour says it's difficult to imagine anyone living there when talking about the family's current residence at Marion Court Estate, which has been described as a bombsite. Also in the news this week, just to to draw into contrast, was the unveiling of the new Sky Pool, a new private and completely transparent swimming pool connecting the roofs of two skyscrapers in Nine Elms. Um, In a country with some of the highest levels of inequality in the global north and in comparably developed countries, um, plus in in this country where housing is treated as an asset rather than infrastructure, housing inequality is probably an unsurprising symptom But the risk seems to be that the disparity of living standards that closely correlates to your housing is becoming normalised, especially in somewhere like London. Um, What can we learn about the UK um, and London by laying these two stories, so the family in Hackney and the new pool in Nine Elms, next to each other? What does it say about where the UK is in terms of housing and how our cities are built, as well as societal and political values more generally? It's clearly an objectionable situation for the level of poverty that still exists in London to be juxtaposed relatively closely with really conspicuous displays of wealth. But in some ways, the thing that is that shows the trouble we're in most about this sky pool is the use of such obviously challenging engineering, which I suspect unless there's some very, very impressive uh, sustainability project being done on it, is very high carbon. All that glass must be immensely thick and very heavily engineered. Uh, And for people to be uh, glorying in these kind of very high energy, unnecessary architectural ornaments, uh, I find at least as problematic as the age-old V sign to the poor represented by conspicuous consumption in architecture. That comes on to the next point about this is something that we've seen time and time again, um, and it's not just councils failing the most vulnerable residents. So only this morning a... Uh, on only this morning on Twitter, a letter was circulating from property management company HML to residents in Croydon who had been without water for days that, at 11pm at night, they had to go and buy their own bottled water. Um, how are we at the stage where, in one of the most affluent cities in the world, there are still people uh, not having their most basic needs met? I think the tendency of the powerful to mistreat the less powerful is once again, a very, very long-standing one. Uh, In this specific kind of question of um, property management for uh, the least affluent, uh, there are questions of possibly disorganisation, excessive deregulation, lack of investment. These tend to be things that come up again and again when you look into the details of these catastrophic cases, of which obviously the appalling disaster was Grenfell Tower. But this same pattern of neglect and uh, 
shortcut and uh, excessive deregulation afflicts lots and lots of aspects of the um, the way in which we look after or fail to look after the, the most vulnerable in our society. Finally, we look at Architecture from Prehistory to Climate Emergency, Barnabas's new book due to be released on the 10th of June and available to pre-order now. The book maps the history of architecture told through the relationship between buildings and energy. Spanning from the humblest prehistoric huts to today's skyscrapers, it explores how architecture and building has been building has been shaped by our access to energy from fire to farming to fossil fuels. Through buildings across the globe, the stories of our priorities and ambitions, our family structures and power structures are revealed. So, Barnabas, can you give our listeners a description of the book in your own words? Yeah, sure. It's um, 14,000 years of dotting around the planet, looking at the ways in which different groups of humans have chosen what to build and then have gone through and built it. And what emerges as you follow that history is an extraordinary tipping point at the point where coal starts to become in widespread use initially in Britain uh, from the 17th century onwards and then spreading out through other fossil fuels as well around the world and bringing with it a level of change that essentially is the cause of global modernity. Um, And this book is hugely topical uh, to be coming out now. The construction and maintenance of buildings today is responsible for an estimated 40% of global greenhouse gas emissions. What specifically inspired you to write this book and how long have you been working on it for? I've been working on it since 2015. Initially, I was starting to think through ways of both teaching and writing architectural history that would have a relevance to contemporary concerns. And so much the biggest concern of humanity today is to reduce our fossil fuel dependence from very high to zero in a very few years. And that is such an enormous, all-consuming challenge that I couldn't not ask the question about it, uh, about its history and how, how, how we got to where we are. And the great problem is energy use. 80% of fossil fuel emissions are uh, energy consumption. And uh, so I looked at the question of how energy was used in architecture in earlier periods. And I did a kind of um, quick back of the envelope calculation in 2015 on the energy cost of building the Pyramid of Khufu, the biggest of the Egyptian pyramids. And I discovered to my absolute jaw-dropping shock that the lifetime energy consumption of any seven average US citizens is greater than the cost of building the entire pyramid of Khufu. And this just knocked my socks off as a fact. So I started looking at energy history. I read some wonderful, wonderful energy history books that I'd recommend to anyone um, by uh, Vaclav Smil and by um, Kanda Malanima and Ward, the book Power to the People, which looks at the last five centuries in Europe. And these energy economy history books opened my eyes to the extraordinariness of our current energy use and to how very, very different the past was because of its poverty in particular of cheap heat. And since then, I can't really 
understand the world in any terms other than energy terms. It's the great crisis of our moment, but energy has always been the great determining factor of all human affairs. And architecture is one of our most energy hungry activities. And so the story comes through incredibly strongly in what we build, when, where and how. Well, I'm going, I was going to ask you, what were some of the most shocking or surprising things that you came across when researching your book? Is it the, is it the, the fact between Pyramid and US citizen? That was pretty huge. The, um, another thing that really astonished me was to look at the ways in which some of the biggest and most long-lasting buildings of the ancient world were produced with levels of heat input that were extraordinarily small. So if you look at something like the Baths of Caracalla, the, possibly the biggest single Roman monument, there's been a brilliant piece of research on it by the archaeologist Janet Delane. And she's done a sort of reverse quantity surveying job on it, where she's worked out everything that went into the main block of that enormous building. And she's uh, uncovered the fact that the apparently enormous amount of brick in those ancient Roman monuments, because that's what you see when you look at them. Brick, of course, fired brick requires quite a lot of heat input. Uh, and so you would assume, looking at them, that they required a lot of heat for all that brick. In fact, only 2.7% of the entire volume of the bars of Caracalla main building was made up of brick. It's just that it's a facing material to the uh, rubble and um, concrete behind, which therefore is very visible. And similarly, the lime that's the heat-dependent ingredient in the, uh, in the uh, concrete in Roman concrete is only 3.2% of the entire volume. So almost all the building is made of heat neutral materials that are used as they are found in the ground. And 76% of the volume comes from within 20 kilometres of the site. So actually, it's an enormously sustainable building in purely energy terms. It uses very, very small heat inputs to produce a building that's still there despite uh, two millennia of neglect and stripping for materials. And that is quite a tribute to the extent to which we're not actually in a situation where we need to give up on robust, long-lasting architecture. We don't need to give up on monumentality. We don't need to give up on permanence. We don't need to give up on sublimity and architectural punch and move into a series of little thatched things. Uh, we just need to take seriously the need to step away from systematic assumptions that you use concrete and steel for everything well thank you very much for being on the show today and apart from pre-ordering your book where can listeners find out more about your work uh, i tend to keep reasonably up to date on my twitter account and instagram both of which are at barnabas calder uh, and there are a couple of events coming up um, that would be good places to hear more about the relationship between architectural history and the climate emergency, one of which is the Society of Architectural Historians of Great Britain's annual symposium. And that is coming up uh, from the 8th of June. There are several days of events and evenings of keynotes and roundtables discussing all sorts of aspects of the relationship between architectural history and energy use and environmental degradation. And uh, that will be held on Zoom and free. So um, do drop into any bits of it that you can make and feel like. Equally on Zoom and equally free will be a talk that I'm giving on the 10th of June uh, at 6pm that you can find details of on my Twitter account. 
that will be um, an introduction to the book and a sort of little book launch. Uh, bring your own drink because it's Zoom, I can't provide them. Uh, and um, I will uh, be otherwise keeping other future appearances and uh, publications and so on updated on Twitter and Instagram. So um, you can follow my work there if you wish to. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.